Uh, Tonight's reading, we are looking at Luke uh, chapter 9. So it's one of the Gospels in the New Testament. We're starting in chapter 9, verse 51. And then we're reading through to chapter 10, verse 20. I'll give you a moment now to get there. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we we wipe off our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom than for for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you and have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have been repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Well, I'm very excited that as uni semester kicks off, we're starting a new series uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Over the next 12 weeks, we're going to work through the book of Luke and look again more closely at Jesus and how he shapes our lives today. Last year, if you were with us, we worked through uh, Luke chapters 1 to 9, and this semester, we're picking up part, uh, partway through 9 to chapter 19 again, and then we'll do the rest of the book in a year or so. Uh, so it technically means, that means that this is Luke again, again. Um, and as we get back into Luke, who knows what it'll be next year, it's going to be helpful for us to look again at the opening words of Luke's gospel, because they help us understand what Luke's gospel is and why it was written. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to briefly just flip back to Luke chapter 1, but no worries if not, because I'll have the key verses up on the screen as well. Uh, But it's always handy if you can see it in context. So check this out. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, the first thing to notice here is that Luke wrote his gospel using eyewitness testimony, kind of like a journalist or a forensic investigator who wasn't at the scene of the crime themselves. But by interviewing many different eyewitnesses, they're able to piece together a fuller picture than any one of those eyewitnesses would have known on their own. Notice that he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And what does he do with all that investigation? He crafts an orderly account of the life of Jesus. You know, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about Jesus and the Bible. Uh, Some people think that what we know about Jesus was written centuries later or invented altogether or completely based on hearsay. Uh, But it's just not true. In the opening of Luke, we see not the language of myth or legends, but of history and good historiography, of eyewitnesses, of careful investigation, of an orderly account. And why did Luke do all this? He wrote it so that we may have certainty about Jesus so that we can know him and be confident about who Jesus really is. Now, we've only looked at these verses very briefly, but if that's something you want to dig deeper on, especially if you're new to Uni Church in the last few months, uh, you can check out the Uni Church Sermons podcast on Spotify um, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And back in July, last July, you can find that first talk in Luke's Gospel last year called So That You May Have Certainty, where we looked more deeply at the historicity and trustworthiness of Luke's Gospel. Helpful to look at briefly now as we come back to it, but in more depth back then. Today, however, we are picking up again in Luke 9, and we're at a key turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, flip back to Luke 9 and verse 51, where we see what's going on. Luke 9 and verse 51. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, it's easy to skip over this one little verse. I don't know if it jumped out to you as significant when we read through it, uh, but it's deeply significant. And so we've got to ask, what does it mean that the time is approaching for him to be taken up to heaven? What is that talking about? Well, being taken up to heaven is Luke's shorthand way of referring to Jesus' death, 
his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead after three days, and then later ascending to heaven at God's right hand in his new glorified body. But what's fascinating is that those events are far in the future. Uh, We won't read about them until much later in Luke chapters 23 and 24, and yet already all the way back here in Luke 9, we're being told that the time approached, the time is near. It's interesting, isn't it? There's so much that Jesus is going to do in the coming chapters of healing and teaching and all these different things. But what this is showing us is that the shadow of the cross lies over every part of Jesus' ministry. This is reminding us that, yes, Jesus did a lot of teaching, but fundamentally what Jesus gives us is not good advice, but good news. You know, a lot of people think that Jesus mainly came to give good advice. Be a nice person, love thy neighbor, be good. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to tell us how to live a good life. He came to live the good life that you and I could never live on our own. He came to live that perfect life and yet die on the cross in our place as a substitute, as an exchange. And because Jesus died and then rose again, conquering death, it means that anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven. It's a great exchange, a great swap. He takes from us, what does he take? He takes our messed up, sinful lives onto himself and pays the penalty in in our place. And what does he give us in exchange? He gives us his perfect righteous life so that we can be right with God and live forever. That is not good advice. That's good news. Jesus didn't just come to teach us. He came to save us. You know, imagine you got caught in a rip down at Cottesloe Beach and it dragged you way out to sea, way further, and it keeps pulling you out and pulling you out. In that moment, you don't need a swimming teacher. You need a lifeguard. You don't need advice on how to swim better. You need someone to save you. And in the same way, Jesus didn't come just to teach us. He came to save us through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. And I don't know if you noticed in Luke 9.51, but Jesus isn't reluctant to do this, is he? On the contrary, he's resolute. He's committed. It says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, the place where he would be tortured and killed and die. Jesus is focused. He knows what his mission is. He's not reluctant. You know, sometimes we can feel like we can feel so much shame and guilt and we think, surely God doesn't really, like, sure, he has to kind of love me, but he doesn't like me. Sure, Jesus kind of, oh, I guess I have to save, save, save us. No, Jesus isn't reluctant to save us. Jesus is resolute. He's committed. That's what he wants to do. So when you ever feel shame, when you ever feel guilt, know that Jesus is resolutely committed to saving you. And then, as Jesus resolutely sets his face for Jerusalem, that sets up this passage that we're looking at, but along the way, in the rest of our passage tonight, Jesus meets four different groups of people. So if you sum it up, Luke 9.51, Jesus is resolute in his mission to save. Uh, But as he does that, he meets four different groups of people. And he relates to them in four different ways. 
And as we look at those four groups of people and how they relate to Jesus, we'll learn a lot about what it means for each of us to relate to Jesus today too. Because all of us here today are in different places in our relationship with Jesus, and that's a good thing. We love that Union Church is a place where people feel welcome at all different stages. So four different groups of people, we'll go through each in turn. The first group of people we meet is those who don't yet know Jesus. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 9 from verse 52. It says, And Jesus, uh, Jesus sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So here we see Jesus is sending some people ahead to find an Airbnb in the next village. But what happened? The people there did not welcome him. Reservation declined. How rude. And why is that happening? Well, the Samaritans and the Jews... They had a bit of bad bad blood going on. We're going to find out a bit more about that uh, next week. But because Jesus was a Jew and he was heading to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the Jews, the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with him. So how did Jesus' disciples respond to this? Well, they want to rain down fire and destroy these people. It seems like, whoa, that escalated quickly, but we're just getting a little insight into the ancient hostility between two groups of people. Some places in the world today, including in some places in the Middle East, you see this kind of ancient hostility and it's red hot. But Jesus, does he buy into that stuff? No, he doesn't want a bar of it, does he? He rebukes them. He says, no, that's not how I operate. And they move on to find a different village to stay in, in peace. Now, Let's pause here for a moment and notice the dynamic that's going on. Jesus' followers are more hostile to those who don't know Jesus than Jesus is. It was true back then, and sadly it's true all too often today as well. Jesus' followers are more hostile to those who don't know Jesus than Jesus himself is. Because, you know, one of the things that Jesus is most well known for is his compassion and love for those who don't know him. For the outsider, the outcast, the irreligious. Jesus welcomes them. He eats with them. He has compassion on them. And even when they reject or persecute them, he just loves them back. But Jesus' followers, sadly, aren't always so good at following his example. Whether it's wanting to call down fire or call down curses. Whether it's the prominent and obvious examples like Westboro Baptist Church telling people that God hates them. But it can also be far more subtle. And there are sadly too many Christians who fall into the culture war mindset of us versus them or or looking down on those who don't agree with us. What does Jesus think of that? If Jesus here, he would rebuke them. And so for us here tonight who do follow Jesus, this is a strong reminder to be welcoming and loving to those who don't yet know Jesus. I must say one of the things I love about Uni Church is that it's not just a place for settled believers, but also a place for doubters, for skeptics, and for those who are curious about Jesus. It's a place that for those who don't yet know him can feel welcome to come and just check him out and find out more about him. That's one of the reasons that we have question time here at Uni Church. 
Um, not after every service, but we try to do it when we can. There'll be one after the, um, at the end of the service tonight as well. We want to invite those questions and let this be a place where people can wrestle with this stuff and feel free to do that. It's also one of the reasons that we have switched to doing uh, Q&A by text as well. Because let's be honest, uh, it can be scary to stick your hand up in front of 150 people and, and share your, your doubts or questions. Uh, we want to help people feel safe to do that and to be honest. Now, of course, we don't do all, all this perfectly. But my prayer is that we as a uni church family would increasingly follow Jesus' example in showing compassion and welcome to those who don't yet know him. So that's the first group of people. How does Jesus interact with those who don't yet know him? He shows them compassion and welcome. And that brings us to the second group, those who want to follow him. In chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, we meet not one but three people who are on the cusp of starting to follow Jesus. Now, I'd love it if we had time to dig into all three, but because of how much ground we're covering tonight, we're just going to focus on the second person, uh, because it's the most difficult, I think, of the three, and also because it demonstrates Jesus' overall point across the three as well. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 9, verses 59 to 60. Uh, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, at first, this seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? This man's response to Jesus' request to follow him, I mean, it seems pretty reasonable. If his dad is dead, why can't he just quickly go bury him and then follow Jesus right after? But it's helpful to know a bit of background here. Uh, We tend to assume that this guy's dad is dead because of our cultural context. It affects the way we read it. Uh, But a number of scholars point out that his dad most likely isn't actually dead yet. Because in their culture, with uh, Jewish burial customs ground in the Old Testament, you had to bury the deceased person that same day. So if his dad had already died, he wouldn't be out on the roads traveling with Jesus. Uh, He would be back with his family preparing for the burial. So hard to know for sure, but most likely his father isn't dead, but elderly. And this man's talking about a delay of who knows, perhaps weeks or months. First, let me make sure this is all sorted with my family, and then I'll follow you. He's saying, Jesus, I do want to follow you, but I've got a few other priorities I want to take care of first. Similar dynamic going in the third person as well. But Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. Following Jesus isn't a hobby that you can slot in somewhere on your list of priorities. Jesus is saying that following him requires undivided loyalty, and needs to come before everything else, even good things like family. And to strike in contrast to what we saw earlier in Luke's gospel last year, in Luke 5, Jesus makes that exact same request, follow me to another person. Luke 5, 28, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. It's a striking difference, isn't it? Exact same request, but two very different responses. One dropped everything and followed Jesus. The other said, yeah, but I've got some more important things to do first. You know, I've met a lot of people on campus who say, yeah, I might investigate Jesus, but first I want to get through uni and and get through work and climb the ladder a bit and, and live a bit. 
Jesus sounds interesting, but I've got some other important things I want to do first, and, and then maybe I'll follow him. But Jesus says that it doesn't work that way. If that's your approach, then you haven't come to grips with who Jesus really is. Jesus either comes first in our lives, or we're not really following him at all. As missionary Hudson Taylor put it, Christ is either Lord of all, or he is not your Lord at all. Jesus is either in charge of every part of our lives, or if not, then it's really just us who are calling the shots and not him. Picking and choosing like a smorgasbord, but really we're still in control. And so it's worth asking, uh, that's a reminder for those here tonight who may be considering following Jesus, but it's also a reminder for those who are following Jesus, it's worth asking, is there something in your life that is holding you back from following Jesus fully? Is there something that is dividing your loyalty and your heart and your affection? And as you look at your life, when it comes to choosing between growing in my relationship with Jesus or this other thing, actually this other thing kind of tends to win. Is there something that's taken center stage, maybe subtly at first, but but powerfully, that you've started to live for and treasure and that's having a bigger impact on how you live than, than Jesus is? If so, Jesus' words here are a call for us to let go of whatever is holding back and follow him fully with undivided loyalty. For those who want to follow him, Jesus calls for undivided loyalty. And that brings us to our third group of people, those who reject Jesus. Now, uh, in the opening verses of chapter 10, which come uh, just after what we've read, Jesus sends out 72 people ahead of him, similar to what happened in 952 to 56, but a few more this time. And verse 1 says they're to go to each place that Jesus was about to visit to prepare the way. They're to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus. God's king has arrived. And Jesus warns them that some will accept them, but others will reject them. Have a look at how he unpacks this for us in Luke 10 from verse 8. Jesus says, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, Jesus says, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, here we see Jesus warning us about how serious it is to reject him. We saw earlier that Jesus came to save, but it's also true that at his second coming, he's coming to bring final judgment, to right every wrong, and to give each person perfect justice according to how they've lived. Now, that is deeply good that Jesus is coming to bring justice. You know, we live in a world that's longing for justice, but it's also deeply confronting. Because if you're anything like me, I've committed a lot of injustice in my life. And so in his love, Jesus warns us because he wants us to turn to him before it's too late. So that instead of getting what we deserve, we might find mercy in him and his death in our place. And this is important to balance and fill out what we saw earlier. We saw earlier that Jesus is compassionate and kind and welcoming to those who don't yet know him. That is absolutely true. 
But don't mistake Jesus' kindness for weakness. Jesus is welcoming, but he is not weak. Jesus is compassionate, but he is not a pushover. Jesus is patient, but if we choose to continue in rejecting him, the consequences are very real. And so if you're here tonight and you're not yet following Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And these, we hope that these words of Jesus are a reminder that you're welcome to keep investigating Jesus and, and keep getting to know him. But it's also a warning against sitting on the fence forever. You know, atheism was all the rage about 10 years ago. Uh, but interestingly, statistics show that atheism is on the decline. And it's become much more common, indeed much more fashionable, for people to describe themselves not as atheists, but as agnostic. Uh, atheism uh, is the belief that there is no God. But as a growing number of people recognize, it's actually impossible to prove that there is no God, which means it requires quite a bit of faith to believe atheism to be true. But agnosticism is different. Instead of asserting that there is no God, agnosticism says, we can't know. It says we can't know if there is a God or not. That's what it means to be agnostic. We can't know. And in many ways, that's a positive change. It often represents a bit more humility, a bit more awareness of epistemology and how knowledge actually works. And it's recognizing that atheism can't actually be proved. So agnosticism can be a lot more open-minded. But not always. One of the dangers of agnosticism is that instead of being a posture of humility in a genuine pursuit of the truth, it can become a cloak for not having to deal with the big questions. Because atheism, the more you dig into it, faces some frankly insurmountable issues. The origin and fine-tuning of the universe, objective morality, the existence of real meaning and purpose, the reality of consciousness and free will, an atheist doesn't have good answers to those questions. But an agnostic can just shrug their shoulders and say, who can know? And so the guise of being open-minded can sometimes just be a cloak for sitting on the fence while functionally continuing to reject Jesus and live without him. But as G.K. Chesterton wrote, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object or purpose of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid, as we're going to do over dinner tonight. Just like we open our mouths to eat something substantial, the purpose of an open mind is to earnestly pursue the truth, to land on something solid, a worldview that can actually make coherent sense of reality. And so if you're not sure about Jesus, keep investigating. Come to him with an open mind. But don't sit on the fence forever. Jesus is welcoming, but he's not weak. He came to save, but he's also returning one day to judge. And so if, like me, you know you're a sinner, and you know that Jesus is a saviour, then even right now in your heart, reach out to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for rejecting you. Please forgive me. Help me to trust you and walk with you. Even a simple prayer like that, you can say that to him right now. And Jesus is more than willing. He's not reluctant. He's, he's resolved. He's resolute. He's more than willing to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to bring you into new life with him.
We've seen how Jesus interacts with those who don't yet know him, those who want to follow him, and those who reject him. And now finally and briefly, how does Jesus interact with those who join him in his mission? Well, have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 10 from verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the people who sent Jesus out to join him in his mission returned to him. And how are they feeling? They returned with joy. And what are they excited about? Well, they're excited that even the demons submit to him. Now, that's something that jumps off the page, doesn't it, for us modern Western readers, uh, because we're not used to seeing much talk about demons and that kind of thing. And so it's worth noting that Satan and demons don't actually come up that often in the Bible, not as often as you might think. But there's a significant uptick in demonic activity during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And why is that? Well, think about it. Remember what Jesus' mission is, why he came? Jesus came to save. And Satan wanted to stop him from filling that mission. And so Satan threw the kitchen sink at him to do it. And that's why we see this big uptick of demonic activity around the earthly ministry of Jesus. But despite all that, Satan was outmatched. His fall and his defeat was in progress. Now, that's something that they could understandably be very excited about. But notice what Jesus says to them in verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus reminds us that true joy is found not in what we do for Jesus, but in what he has done for us. True joy is found in the reality that because Jesus died and rose again, our names are written in heaven when we trust in him. The moment we throw ourselves upon Jesus, we're part of his family now forever. And that, I've got to say on a personal note, that is such a good reminder and encouragement for me. You know, I've been in vocational ministry for about 10 years now, and there's been a lot of ups and downs. You get a front row seat to a lot of joyful moments, but also a lot of heartbreak. And I've got to say, if my joy was reliant upon what I do for Jesus... Let me tell you, it would be a roller coaster. But if it's based not on what I do for Jesus, but on what he's done for me, that because of Jesus' blood, my name is written in heaven, that is a joy that circumstances can never take away, even when things are going horribly. That is an immovable rock, a foundation to build your life and your joy upon. So personally, that's a big encouragement for me, but Uni Church, I hope this is an encouragement for you guys as well. In God's kindness, there are so many of you who are joining Jesus in his mission here at Uni Church. Students and workers laboring in the gospel to make disciples together. Hub leaders, youth leaders, kids leaders, all of you who are serving on hospo and music and AV and, and a bunch of other ways to make these Sunday gatherings happen. 
All of you who are serving in informal ways, just looking out for others in conversation and, and encouraging them in Jesus and looking out for someone who might be new. All of that, big or small in our eyes, is big to God. And all of that is joining Jesus in his mission. And Uni Church, I honestly can say that I rejoice in that. I rejoice to see the ways that you serve. But you know what's a far deeper cause for joy? By the blood of Jesus, your names are written in heaven. True joy is found not in what we do for Jesus, but in what he has done for us. And that's a joy that can never be taken away for us. So Uni Church, I'm excited for another year of life together. Here tonight, all of us were in different places with Jesus. Some of us have been following him for a long time, some of us just checking him out for the first time. But wherever we're at, my prayer is that we will discover that Jesus meets us where we're at and that we would all discover, perhaps for the first time or perhaps more deeply, the joy of knowing Jesus. Let's pray together for that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and how resolute he was in his mission to save us through his death in our place, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven at your right hand. Father, we thank you that Jesus meets us where we're at. For those of us here tonight who are just starting to investigate, please help them to see how awesome Jesus is and how he's someone who is worth giving their life and their undivided loyalty to. For those who are rejecting Jesus, help them to heed his warning and turn back to him to find life. And for those who are joining Jesus in his mission, week by week, day by day, please help us to find our joy not in what we do for Jesus, but in what he has done for us. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.